We will finish our series on community this morning. And over the past three weeks, we talked about a broken community and how in Genesis 3, we see that sin enters, wedges itself, and it disrupts the community that we have between man and God. And it also disrupts the community that we have between one another. And so we saw three weeks ago why community is so hard to experience and to have. It is because of sin and it's because of our sinfulness. We saw that it resulted in fear and shame and a desire to hide away. And over the past couple of weeks, we've drawn that out and, and saw how Christ soothes us in those areas, calls us out. And then we took a look last week about what true community is. And we remember that true community is a place where we bear one another's burdens, where we come together and help the other brother or sister who is next to us to continue to run and press forward. What we also recognize in a true community, it takes the individual carrying their own load, carrying their own cross and following after Jesus. We recognize in a true community that at the individual level, each person that is called to Christ must follow after him and at the same time help carry one another's burdens. So we saw a very important aspect of true community where each individual is called to live before God and to run after him while spurring on the brothers and sisters next to them. And we were told to not grow weary in doing this because it will be hard. worry, I'm going to preach either way, Mike or not, so let's keep going. Today, we're going to look at a holy community. And the question I want to ask is, what does a holy community do? If we are a group of people that have been broken because of sin, and we are a group of people that are striving towards and have been given true community in Christ, we also recognize that we are a holy community that has been set apart and distinguish to be different from this world. So then, what does a holy community do? And so today's gospel message is pretty simple. It's that those who believe in Christ are chosen and are precious. That if you are in Christ, you are a Christian, you are chosen and you are precious in God's eyes. Some of us need to hear that. And a lot of times we are afraid to say this from the pulpit because it sounds too feel-good. It sounds too prosperity-esque. But at the same time, as a Christian, life is hard. In fact, in some ways it's even harder. But the truth remains that those of us who are in Christ are chosen and precious. So I pray that that sinks in as we sit under God's word this morning. That you in Christ are chosen and you are precious. And we're going to look at this in three points. First, the cornerstone. We're going to look at the cornerstone. Second, the living stones. And lastly, we're going to look at the people who belong. So first, the cornerstone. If we look in verse 4, 
we see that Jesus is referred to as a living stone. Look at verse 4 with me. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. This is referring to Jesus. He is, we are being told that he is a stone that is living. What does that mean? It means that because Jesus has resurrected from the dead, he is referred to as not just a stone representing a person, but one that is living. It's, it's, it's saying that Jesus is a living hope. As the first one to be raised from the death, Jesus is a stone that is now living. Jesus is now a hope that is alive. It is not a hope that we look at that's an object, that's inanimate and lifeless. But Jesus, upon dying for our sins, being raised on the third day, God called him out of the grave not just to be a stone but a living Stone, Not just to be some symbolic hope, but to be a living hope in Jesus. We see similar language in different contexts when we refer to Jesus as the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians 15.20, which is familiar to us perhaps by now, it says that, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's Paul is using agricultural language here. He's saying this, just as a farmer comes out and picks the first fruit of that harvest and tastes it and sees that it is delicious and amazing and beautiful, he stands in awe and excitement because he knows the rest of the harvest is to follow, that the rest of the harvest is going to be just like this first fruit. And in the same way, in that agricultural language, Paul is telling us that Jesus is the first fruit. When God raised this first fruit, from the grave, and he saw it, his one and only son, he saw that it was good, and he's excited to see the rest of the harvest, those who are in him, to come to life as well. But here we are seeing not an agricultural type of illustration, but more of a, a building, a masonry, or an architectural language. We're, we're being told that Jesus, just like he's the first fruits just as he represents the whole harvest to come, Jesus is also, in a similar way, the cornerstone or a living stone. He is the first stone that become, became alive, which will represent all the other stones that will also be alive in him. And so the first stone, the first living stone gets a special name because all first place things do. Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone stone in this way, that Jesus is the first stone chosen by God and precious in God's sight, that he as his only true son that is faithful and obedient, that he as a son who has come down to earth to die for the sins of the world and was raised on the third day to be a living stone, this stone is now deemed as the cornerstone, chosen and precious. And we're reminded as we look further in verse 6 through 8, look at it with me. It says, God is the builder. It reminds us that God is the one building his church. He says, he is laying a stone in Zion. He is building a church. He is building, in other words, a community. He's building a people for himself. 
We see all throughout the Bible, starting in the Old Testament, that God's desire is to redeem a people for himself, a community of sons and daughters in Christ to himself, a people, a community, and a church to himself. And how does he set out to do this? He lays down a stone. He lays down a stone, a cornerstone, not any stone, but a chosen stone, a stone that is precious to him. And he lays this first living stone down as a foundation. And we will call it the cornerstone. And we are told that when we hope, when we believe in this cornerstone, we will not be put to shame. That we will not be put to shame. That what sin has caused, fear, shame, and hiding will start to become undone as we hope in Jesus, the cornerstone. And I want us to remember this. As long as the cornerstone is perfect and flawless, it allows grace for the other imperfections of the other stones to be brought in in a beautiful way. If I can give you an illustration, the cornerstone is exactly that. It's a big slab of stone that is set at the corner to start a building. And it's precious and it's chosen even in the masonry and architectural sense because it must be straight. It must be at 90 degrees angle in each corner and it must be placed at the corner because if that angle is off, then the two walls are going to be off and all the other lines, the whole building will be crooked. It reminds me when we used to do flag football for the youth group, we had to draw field lines out. And we would just set a cone down, and we would just have two people, all right, take 30 steps that way, and I'll go this way. We just walk 30 steps, with the orange spray paint on the grass, 28, 29, 30. We look up, and the line is just a mess. We look at each other, and we're like, that's not straight. And the other guy says, well, we got to go with it. So then we walk 30 paces this way to make a square, and the other person meets us. And by the end, we see that although it's a, it's a field, the way we spray painted it is completely crooked, and everything is misaligned. Now, that affects us down the road because as we are refereeing flag football, the field is misaligned. So on one end, they've crossed the first down, but on the other end, they did not. <laughs> The whole game is ruined, but we got to go with it. Don't worry, we'll be fair. We'll take that into consideration. The first corner that we made and the lines that were drawn from it were inaccurate, were wrong, because our starting point was wrong. Just like this, the cornerstone is important because it sets the proper trajectory. It sets the other stones in place. Even if those stones are imperfect, the cornerstone, through its perfection, allows grace enough to the other imperfect stones to be set. What do I mean by that? Quite literally, it means because Christ is perfect. If he is set down as the primary cornerstone, you and I, with all of our jagged edges, with all of our imperfections, with all of our unevenness, can be placed alongside him by the Spirit that sticks us to him, that allows us 
to become straight in Christ, that allows us to become united to him, that allows us to become united to one another. We become stones, jagged as we are, imperfect as we are, crooked as we are, but we become stones that belong now to Christ and belong to one another. This should be encouraging. This means that so long as the cornerstone is perfect, anyone who is imperfect, anyone who is broken, anyone who is flawed, anyone who has jagged edges or rough around the edges can come and be laid down to be a part of what God is doing, in building his people, his community, his church. Christ is the cornerstone. Now, when I looked online on Google, it led me to the Encyclopedia Britannica, and I giggled because I remember even as a first or second grader that people would come to the school and, and we would actually have hard copies of this and they would tell us how amazing it is and how our library got this collection and it was an encyclopedia and it has anything you can imagine. It was like Google on ink and paper. But I realized they've digitized all that. Thanks for you all who go to coding boot camps and do things like that. Maybe that's not what you do. Maybe I'm completely ignorant. Either way, when I was looking at the Encyclopedia Britannica, it had something really interesting to say about cornerstones. It says this, In the past, cornerstones were set at the corner as a foundational stone, and it provided real support and direction. And it had a purpose for the structure of the building. This is what it says. That the cornerstone symbolized seeds in which the building would germinate and rise. Even in this cornerstone language, they're using this agricultural understanding that the cornerstone symbolized the seed that would allow the whole building to germinate and rise properly. And so in ancient masonry and architecture, the cornerstone was really significant. But it tells us now in the modern day, because of construction advancements, presently, the cornerstone has, has no significant value in the building. It's a ceremonial building block, it tells us. It's placed on the outer wall. It doesn't have to be at the corner. And it's usually a different color. It looks like a slab of granite. And it's, it's, it's placed there as a ritual to commemorate or dedicate. Typically, this, this cornerstone, the modern cornerstone, is hollowed out and placed inside or things cultural value, newspapers, photographs, currency, books, iPhones, whatever is the custom and the culture of that time, they hollow out this symbolic cornerstone, they put it in there so when the building comes down, they can look back and remember the good old days. The cornerstone presently, because of our advancements, no longer needed it, it has no part in true structural foundation. It, it doesn't provide real support or direction. It's just a nice symbolic representation of what once used to be very significant. And I thought to myself, boy, are we at risk in doing that to Christ the cornerstone? I said, yes, we are. We are just as much in risk in our modern times with our advancements of thinking that 
a cornerstone can just be placed there as a symbol, that the cornerstone of Christ can be hollowed out and filled with our own cultural significant things, that the cornerstone, which used to stabilize, provide structure, and give direction, the Christ who used to do that, we still keep him at face value as a dedication, but we've hollowed him out to be everything that we just want him to be for our own cultural values. Church, I want to encourage and challenge us Let's be sure, at least in our understanding of God's church, that the cornerstone is not hollow, but the cornerstone is living. The cornerstone is the first fruits. The cornerstone of Jesus Christ still provides the structural support that you and I need. If our cornerstone in Christ is just a symbol, then you and I who are broken and jagged have no place to go. But the beauty and the truth is that Christ, in fact, is the chosen and precious cornerstone. It is through him that many are called to die to this world and live to God just as Christ and now become living stones. So our second point, if Christ is the first living stone, the cornerstone, then we understand that in him, united to him through his death and resurrection, now we are transformed to be a living stone as well. Look at verse 5 with me. As you come to him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are being told that just as Jesus is a living stone, in him you and I are now living stones as well. Just as Jesus is the first fruit of the harvest, you and I are the fruit that has followed because of him. That means even though, again, we are imperfect and jagged and scared and imperfect, because of Christ we are transformed now, not to just be a stone that is dead sitting there, wasting away, but a stone that is called now to pick up our crosses, to deny ourselves, to follow him, to be alive. To be alive. And I know we don't like suffering, and we don't like hardships, and we don't like carrying our crosses, but it's a sure sign that we are alive and following after Christ, that we are living stones just like Christ is a living stone. But you know what's beautiful here? What's beautiful here is that if Christ as the first living stone, the cornerstone, was chosen and precious, then you and I as living stones in Christ are also chosen and precious. That Every single stone that is sitting in the pews here right now, if you have been called to Christ, you're not just some stone that is thrown into the heap. You're not just stone that's just used. We'll put this one here. We'll put this one there. This one doesn't fit. Throw it out. We'll put this one here. No. Because Christ has been chosen and he's precious, those who are in him are also chosen and precious. That means each stone that is now living in Christ has a significant value. Each stone is chosen for a specific place. Each stone is looked upon as precious. 
Look at Ephesians 1.4. We're reminded, even as he chose us in Jesus, in him, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We're being told that just as Jesus, as the cornerstone, was chosen and precious in God's eyes, you and I in him, chosen in Christ, are precious too. That you are chosen that it wasn't an accident, that each and every single one of us who are in Christ has been chosen before the foundations of the world, and we are looked upon by God as ones that are precious. Now, I don't know what it is that causes you to struggle with this, whether you've been picked last at gym class growing up, whether you're a middle child or a last child, whether you just don't feel particularly important at your workplace, whether you don't, you don't feel precious in your workplace, or in your homes, out there in the world. In Christ, when it comes to the building of God's people, his community, and his church, we are living stones that are chosen, that are known deeply and chosen with all of our flaws and jagged edges. And we are brought in to be precious living stones as well. This is beautiful, brothers and sisters. This means that those who have been called to pick up their cross and follow him, those who profess that I have been crucified with Christ, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, those who have become living stones in the living stone are useful, valuable, and necessary to the building of God's church, to the building of his community, to the building of a people for himself. Let me speak it to you directly. If you are in Christ, you are useful. No matter what it might feel like out there. If you are in Christ, you are useful. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. If you are in Christ, you are valuable. You are valuable. It doesn't matter what you get paid hourly out there. You are valuable. If you are in Christ, you are necessary. You are needed. You've been called. You've been chosen and you are precious. You are necessary, no matter how unimportant you might feel out there. When it comes to the building of God's church, his community, a people for himself, you are useful, brothers and sisters. You are valued, and you are necessary. Now, I don't have to remind you, but I will. It's not because you're special inherently. It's because of Christ. It's because of our first living stone, the cornerstone. It's because he died for you and rose again and said, come follow me, unite yourself to me. Where now we have these benefits. And we can, with confidence, even though we don't feel it, we can know the truth that we are useful because of Christ, that we are valued because of Christ, and we are necessary because of Christ. This isn't just a feel-good message. This isn't some kind of prosperity pitch. I'm not trying to just make you feel good and give you a little nugget of hope for the next coming week. I'm trying to tell you the truth of God's word that says, in Christ, you are a living stone that is very useful, that is very valuable, and very necessary. I want to give you an example from the Bible. 
We looked at a couple weeks ago in the anatomy of the church, Matthew 16, 16. We saw that Peter, his name ironically meaning a rock or a stone, Peter makes the confession to Jesus and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Savior. You are the son of the living God. And that's why Jesus is the living hope, the living stone. He's the son of the living God. And so he's the living stone, living rock. And Christ says, on this I will build my church. And we recognize that it's this confession that becomes the solid rock. But I don't want to avoid and neglect poor Peter over here. His name is a stone or a rock after all. There must be some significant value to this. Imagine with me, Peter who we know will come to deny Jesus three times. Peter, a stone or a rock, who we know will deny Christ. Upon this confession is transformed and redeemed. He is made useful, valuable, and necessary for God's kingdom. Why? Because even though he denies Christ three times, when Christ resurrects, he comes to Peter and he says, do you love me? then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Jesus gives him work to do because Peter is still valuable and necessary and useful for the kingdom work of God. He says, Peter, if you love me still, then go feed my sheep. Take care of my people. Take care of my community. In the book of Acts, we see Peter stands up And he gives such a sermon powered by the Holy Spirit that 3,000 people come to Christ. This little stone that denied Jesus three times proclaims God's word in such a way where 3,000 people come into faith and start the early church. This same stone that rejected Christ in Christ becomes a living stone and is even used by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write books in the Bible. I love the fact that we get to see Peter, an imperfect man with broken and jagged edges, who even denies Christ at one point. I love it that we have in the Bible an example of such a lowlife, such a backstabber, who can be transformed to a living stone in Christ, who can become useful, valuable, and necessary. I love it because a lot of times, I see that in myself. And I think if we're honest, you see yourself much like Peter too. But as Christ is the cornerstone, you and I are called into him to become living stones. You are useful. You are valuable. You are necessary. So then we come together. And I want to encourage you all who perhaps have not placed your trust in Christ, if this is speaking to you and the Holy Spirit is just pressing this home, in Christ you are useful and valuable and necessary. Come to Christ. So as we start to see this people for God's own possession take place, we see that these lost little stones now belong. Our third and final point. In verse 9 through 10, it says this. But you are, again, here we go, a chosen race. 
You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Look at the way we're described. We're not described as just rocks that are sitting around and lazy and unworthy. Chosen, royal, holy. A people for his own possession. These rocks now belong to someone. I find it fascinating that kids are so weird that at one point, almost every kid collects little stones. There's something about it that is fascinating to them, and they always bring it home, and they name it. I'm fascinated by the fact that there's something called a pet rock. Children see things so simply, and they just love it. We are not just stones laying around, but we are a people who belong. Just as curious it may be to see a child love a stone so much, we understand that God loves us deeper still because of Christ. He has chosen us, and we are a people for his own possession. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are told once you were not a people, you were not a community, you were not a people who belonged, you were not royal, you were not chosen, you were not precious. But now you are God's people, we're told. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Think about this, how amazing it is that we are now stones, living stones in Christ who belong who have a safe home, a building, a people, a community where we can belong to one another and call each other our own, a community of people who can look to this amazing cornerstone and says, he is mine and I am his. We belong, we belong, we belong in Christ. We see again that all that has happened in the brokenness of the garden is undone. From fear in the garden... Now to boldness in the throne room, from shame of nakedness to a priestly robe of righteousness, from hiding in darkness to the marvelous light of the world, we are called to share our testimony with one another, with the world. We are called to share, we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are called to remind one another whenever fear or shame or hiding may creep in again that because of Christ we can be called outward. We are necessary, valuable, and useful. And we got to pick up our cross and we got to go as Christ calls us. We got to talk to each other, remind each other, and share with one another about how this has been true in our past, our testimonies, what God is doing presently in our life as He's transforming us as a living stone, and our hope for the future as we continue to confess that Jesus is the Son of the living God. Let me close with this illustration. As living stones who have been called by the cornerstone, to belong now as a people of God. We live life together, sharing this commonality, this commonality and nothing else. We're called together to share this community, this holy community with one another. 
a community that is set apart, that is unlike anything else in the world, that even if we don't have any likes or dislikes or taste in music or personalities, no matter how jagged one another's personalities or characters are, we are called to one another to live in a community because we have been called holy. We have been placed aside. We have been designated, destined, and determined to be made more like Christ. I want to spur you guys on further on. I want to encourage you guys to live life together in such a way where we are living in a holy community, a true community, recognizing that it is broken, but it will be perfected when Christ returns. Look at this quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. He says this about living in a community. He needs us all. He the individual, needs his brother man as a bearer and a proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. How many times have we preached to ourselves and doubt still creeps in? And how easy is it to proclaim truth to someone else so powerfully, so sure? What we're being told here, what Bonhoeffer is getting at, is that when we speak the word of God into one another's life, we can do it in such a way where it's powerful, that we can cast the doubts away by saying, no, remember, you're useful, you're necessary, you're precious, you're chosen, you're valuable. Because often we forget, because often our jobs, our roles in the house, at the end of the day, we feel worthless We feel like a failure. We feel like we're never enough. But we're reminded by God's word that because we are a people who are holy and set apart, not to be conformed to this world, but to live for the kingdom that has come, no matter what the world may make you feel or say, that in Christ you are chosen and you are precious. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you to remember this and to share this with one another. I challenge you this week to meet up with someone and share this truth. Let's pray.